Hello and welcome to Gay for Horror, the show where not all the movies are gay, but I sure am. How are you doing? <laughs> um, today I'm talking about Ready or Not, which is a really fun movie that I, I just had the privilege to see, um, and which I enjoyed a lot and was surprised by a lot, and so I want to break down um, what I liked about it and why I liked it so much. Um, I I had intended to do, <laughs> and didn't to do, um, an episode on scary stories to tell in the dark, um, just because of time, uh, and distraction. Uh, so I'm going to kind of skip over it, but maybe I'll come back to it when it comes out on like Blu-ray or something. Uh, but, uh, I really have found this whole summer has been part of why I started doing this actually is that there's just so many horror movies this summer. And the upside of that is that there's been a lot of great films for us all to watch, uh, and, and obsess over. And then the sort of downside of that is it just seems like there's too many. I know that that sounds like an impossible problem and like not actually a problem in, in a consumption sense, but in a pragmatic sense, um, I've seen all of them and I've been very diligent. Uh, I just feel like for the average person who maybe only likes but is not uh, steadfastly committed to, to horror movies, <laughs> it's just too many and not really any one of them stood out all summer. I tried to do the numbers actually, so I actually wrote down, I did a little uh, box office uh, digging uh, depending on how you define horror, uh, and I know some people have particular sensitive feelings about what is horror, but I define horror pretty broadly. Um, I would say there's there were 10 movies this summer that I would call horror movies between May and August, so up until now. Um, some people, I guess, would include It Chapter 2 as like the last horror movie of the summer, I'm not going to do that. I think uh, Labor Day is kind of like start of the fall, so we'll just say that. Um, so if you if you cut it off at Ready or Not, which came out on Wednesday, um, there's ten, and that doesn't include a couple of. Uh, oh, by the way, that only includes wide release studio films. So it doesn't include anything that was released in lim only in limited release or released non theatrically, of which there were many of those as well. Um, but just looking at the major studio ones, the ones that kind of everyone would have on their radar and see commercials for on TV, there were at least 10. But it also doesn't include a couple that I, I, I may not have traditionally thought of as horror, which some people might and might want to include here. Um, and those would be uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, which to me is, seems, I know that Godzilla is a classic horror character in a lot of respects, but also that movie seems like more of an action blockbuster. Uh, and then also Hellboy, the reboot of Hellboy, which seems, again, like sort of a comic book action movie with horror elements. And it also didn't include The Dead Don't Die, just because it seemed like such a straight comedy, even though it's about zombies, it didn't seem like it was a horror comedy. Um, so, but if you counted those, if those were like on your, you know, if you were to think of those also, that would be 13 in four months. Uh, <laughs> There was nearly one a week. If I mean, if you count, if you you know, going from May to August, so that's you know, if you count, if you count those three, it means practically one a week. So there were too many. Here's the ones. So here's a short list. These are the, the these are the ten uh, that I can think of wide release horror movies uh, in summer of 2019. So a bright burn. Annabelle Comes Home, 47 Meters Down, Uncaged, which I also saw, by the way, but I didn't get to talk about. It's um, it's fun. Uh, Ma, Child's Play, Crawl, which I did an episode on. The Intruder, um, which I liked quite a bit, actually. Uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which I also liked quite a bit. 
uh, Ready or Not, which I will talk about today, and Midsummer, which I talked about too much several <laughs> several weeks ago. Um, you can find that if you'd like to hear it. Uh, so that's ten. That's a lot. Um, you know, and so I saw Forty Seven Meters Down. You know, I saw Scary Stories in the Dark, and then I saw Forty Seven Meters Down Uncaged, and I I just didn't get to do episodes of those. Um, Uncaged is really. I'll just do a three sentence review of each of those before I do Ready or Not. Um, Uncaged uh, is such a like attraction based movie like it's barely even a movie the characters are non-existent they're just sort of like shapes on the screen (laughs) I think the movie views the characters with the depth that sharks do I think (laughs) I don't know any of their names (laughs) I don't remember I couldn't describe them to you they're super vague and super unimportant but what's really fun about the movie and why I mean I think there is an audience for which that movie would be really great um What's really fun about the movie is that it treats itself like a like a theme park ride. So there's no real strong plot, but uh, but once you get in the water, and it does take a little bit. Those first fifteen minutes are like you got to get to the water. But once you get in the water, it's like twice as cynical and twice as uh, twice as nasty as the first. Part of what made the for- the first forty seven meters down when they were you know, only caged, not yet uncaged. Um, <laughs> To, to, to adapt the Britney Spears song. Um, but uh, but uh, part of what made 47 Years Down the first one such a surprise is it really, uh, it was nastier than people thought it would be. It had sort of a downer of an ending, not to say too much about it, but it had sort of a downer of an ending. And uh, and also it, it like it didn't, it didn't quite lit up. It had like a fair amount of cynicism and uh, was not, as predictable as one may have thought it would be, uh, although it certainly had like a, a fair amount of earnestness and roughness around the edges in terms of character drama. Uh, but to be fair, I remember, you know, I remember it was Mandy Moore, I remember it was Claire Holt, and I remember I remember things about those characters and those actresses that I don't remember about the sequel. The sequel kind of foregoes trying to make the characters important and just says, um, these are bodies in the water and we have sharks and the sharks will eat them, uh, and, and that that is the appeal of the movie. And, and it doubles down on the kind of nastiness and the cynicism of it, which is to say, the whole, per- the whole joy of the movie is just that... Uh, at any moment, a shark might just take down <laughs> a shark. Like it really, it really turns it into like a a, a theme park ride. It's just, uh, and it's not. There's no suspense really. It's mostly just like shock moments of every so often a character is just wiped out by a shark and you don't always I don't think and at least the audience I was with didn't always anticipate which one and in what moments I think they make really smart really nasty choices about in what moments to take characters down I mean and I think uh, when I talked about Crawl a couple of weeks ago I said you know that like there's these moments in Crawl and I liked Crawl overall but there are these moments in Crawl where uh they're just kind of bobbing in the water and the alligators are giving them their space to have conversations about, uh, (laughs) daddy daughter time. So, uh, I, I, like, imagine if in, in that kind of a situation in, in Crawl, where it seems to be a dialogue scene, if a, a, a gator just took out one of the characters. Like, that's sort of how 47 Meters Down Uncaged works, where it's just they really want to upset you. Or not, I don't know if it's upsetting. They want to jolt you with these kind of unexpected shark attack moments. Uh, and it really, and, and it, it keeps up. It does not let up until the last second. Like, it just keeps going and going, and it has such a voraciousness for these shark attacks 
attack moments. Uh, and I think the audience, I think it came across really fun. And it, as long as you don't actually want an earnest character drama, if you want a spectacle film, a, a film that has a series of shocks and, and that has this kind of like twisted fun of watching people get like nabbed, people who are, are not emotionally important to you, <laughs> who are barely people, who are just kind of like these like, uh, you know, character types. Um, Actually, they're not even character types. They don't even have character. They're just they're just forms. They're just they're just blobs in the water. Uh, it, <laughs> but anyway, it's it it is it is not nearly as 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 earnest and emotional as as the first. It's it's it it there is a sister drama, but like it's so much thinner and so much less important. Because uh, in the first one, there's only two of them, and so you had to kind of invest in them a little bit, much like Crawl. Uh, but this new one, there's like four. There's four of them, and then there's random strangers. And there's just so many bodies, and just it's just a, it's a feeding frenzy. Um, so, but again, there's an audience for that, and I, you know, I I'm not the, I, the that's not my that's not my go to, but I enjoyed it for what it was, and that's what it is. I think if you wanted a clear description on what kind of a movie it is, uh, and the scary story still in the dark is just the sweetest, and I really <laughs> I really loved. Uh, I love I love the first like twenty minutes wholeheartedly with no apologies. I think it's so good. The whole opening sequence that takes place on Halloween is perfect. I was mad it wasn't already Halloween when I was watching it. Um, which is a whole nother thing. Whereas there's so many there were so many horror movies this summer, and then also several of them had particular times of year that they were that they were invoking uh that that we aren't currently in i thought that was a little strange i know that movies don't always come out in season but scary stories to tell in the dark would have been a great movie to come out closer to halloween and there aren't very many traditional horror movies coming out this year around halloween time i don't know what's going on there's a lot of things that people are calling horror or they're sort of horror adjacent like maleficent which i don't really take to be a horror movie but people are sure describing it as a horror-ish title and uh, that joker movie which people are saying is going to have kind of a horror angle but there's no i don't think there's any like major uh, just just like tried into a horror movie in october and the scary series tell dark seems like such a no-brainer for that and i wish it had come out in october um but that's beside the point i really enjoyed it also by the child's play takes place in the winter like clearly in december and it would have been a perfect movie and i'm, I'm sure maybe this is what they intended when they made it but it, it would have been a perfect movie to release in january in that weird like the first few weeks of the new year when almost nothing comes out, where, like, the devil inside can make $30 million in a weekend, or where Escape Room did really well this past year, or, yeah, well, the current year. Um, you know, I, uh, that could have come out in January. I, there's, you know, it was just too busy this summer. It was too chaotic. Uh, but anyway, Scary Stories in the Dark, even though I wish it were Halloween when I was watching it, it made me love it so much because it, it, it has major Halloween vibes. It's... Uh, the tone is kind of like the elevator pitch for the movie is like Hocus Pocus, but that first scene in Hocus Pocus that's actually scary where they kill that little girl. Because remember, we all think Hocus Pocus is cute and like amaka maka maka maka, but they kill that little girl. And if I saw Hocus Pocus as a child, I was really afraid of that first scene. It's actually kind of terrifying for for that first moment if you're a child, particularly if you're a child. So I mean, uh, a scary story in the dark is kind of Hocus Pocus, but uh, but that first scene where it's where there's stakes and little kids might die, uh, and and Jumanji like that's the sort of intersection. Um, there's the cross streets. Oh, maybe I'll start calling it that. The cross streets. Those are the, those are the cross streets. Uh, Hocus Pocus and Jumanji because there's this kind of like uh, in Jumanji the game comes to life and it sort of six magical creatures on you and in, in the in, in scary stories the book kind of comes alive and 
and you sort of take turns having to cope with magical creatures. So it kind of has a systemic quality of moving through the whole cast of children until nary a child is left. <laughs> um, but it's really it's it's very fun. The main character is a shy uh, storyteller who likes horror movies, and so if there's ever someone I was going to relate to, <sighs> Stella. Anyway, so she's lovely. I love her. Um, she's very relatable to me. Uh, it really captures, I think, more than anything, the joy of uh, being a child and kind of subversively, but like very comfortably subversively, or so she thinks, asking for the the kind of prickly pleasure of a scary story um and it's just the fun of seeking it out because uh, it starts out quite harmless and she just wants a scary story and it's such like a draw so there's such a there's a moment where she asks for a scary story and it's the, like putting it into the world this seems like such a liberating moment in this weird way that i think we all kind of relate with if you like horror movies which is like you watch these things and you think oh I'm, i like i want to watch it and then you realize you're sort of like inc in incapable of sleeping and you think maybe i shouldn't do that but then you do it again anyway so it has that has that kind of quality that i think is very relatable to horror people uh and it's just the character design is amazing the individual kind of creatures are so good to look at and it's a lot of fun and those two movies are great so i'm not doing spoiler reviews for those those are just like a bonus review uh, if you cared what I thought of those ones. Um, there were a lot of great horror movies this summer, and um, so I feel uh, lucky for that. And I'm really proud to have seen all the ones that I mentioned on that list, and, uh, and, and there's not one that I really hated. There's nothing that I regretted seeing. So, um, you know, go see all of those when they come out on DVD, if you haven't, or Blu-ray, or whatever, whatever the future holds. Digital, streaming, what's it? Uh... uh if you haven't seen them, if you haven't seen them yet, uh, but Ready or Not is so fun. So I'm gonna do Ready or Not. I'm gonna I am gonna do non spoilers and then spoilers. So I'm gonna do non spoilers first, and then I will ring a bell, which sounds like this, uh, and then I'll do spoilers. And I know I could just tell you that I'm switching to spoilers, but the bell makes it festive. So. Uh, <laughs> Ready or Not is a joy. I did not know this because I don't watch trailers, and I've said this before, but if you hadn't heard, I don't watch trailers, so I don't know if they sold it this way, but I don't think that they did because it's really a comedy. It's a horror comedy, a true horror comedy, maybe in the vein of something like um, The Cabin in the Woods, the Joss Whedon-produced, co-written movie directed by Drew Goddard, uh, where it's not that the comedy you know, lessens the horror or the horror lessens the comedy. They really work in tandem. Uh, and I love that. It's such. A, it makes it a really fun movie. Um, in a way that not you know not every horror movie is a fun sit. Like I loved Midsummer, um, but I don't you know I wouldn't say it was a fun time at the movies. Uh, Ready or Not is a true fun time. Like bring friends and uh, see it twice. Like see you know I would go see this movie again in a heartbeat because uh, it's. It's fun to sit through, um, <laughs> where not all movies are. Uh, and that also just speaks to the quality of it. Like, it's it's a totally enjoyable, uh, not, not, like, not, not just suspenseful or scary, but like actually just kind of uh, uh, appealing story with characters who are funny and their relationships are funny and the relationships would be funny 
if not for the mur without the murder, but the murder helps. Um, so uh, I don't want to say too much about the plot of this movie. I feel like what I understand about the way it's been marketed is that it's fairly clear that this involves a murderous game of hide-and-seek. So that's pretty much fair game to say. It involves a murderous game of hide-and-seek. Um, if that sounds appealing to you, I highly recommend that you go and see this movie. Um, it's doing like no... It's, it, it's going to make like $5 million this weekend, which is really sad. Um, it's also, I think, a Fox movie that was acquired by... Disney, because Disney owns Fox now, and Disney is, like, purging the roster <laughs> with all these movies that they inherited but didn't actually want to make. Um, and I think it's probably getting shortchanged. So if you have the time and and uh, and the inclination, I really recommend, like, pulling the... Pulling the trigger sounds so violent. Taking the leap and going to see and going to to see this movie, but again, it is a horror comedy. It is funny. It is a horror movie that is not. It's it's not unbearable if you're not like a very very strong horror enthusiast. Like if you're a casual horror person, it's totally bearable. It's a fun kind of story. Um, if you've seen things like The Most Dangerous Game, which is the kind of archetypal man hunts man movie from the thirties, uh, you know. It's about in that vein. It's a little bit more violent because it's 2019, but uh, it's sort of in that vein of uh, uh, suspense, m m more suspense and intrigue than kind of like straight grossness. Although there are a few gross moments, and I will talk about that in the spoiler section because I had feelings about those. Oh, I um. <clears throat> I forgot to. If you if you have seen the most dangerous game, by the way, I really recommend that you try to find a copy of. Uh, or you might be able to find. Well, you might be able to not technically legally, but you might be able to uh, find like a copy uh, streaming on like YouTube, like a. <laughs> Like a suspicious uh, copy um, on YouTube, but there's a, there's a remake of the most dangerous game called A Game of Death, which is directed by Robert Wise, and Robert Wise is like one of those people that I have um, a bit of a crush on because I just feel like he had the most interesting career. Uh, but I think he's, uh, I don't need to talk too much about Robert Wise, but he's, I think he really is one of these people who. Um, really suffers by some of the weight of auteurism, which is to say that we kind of are predisposed to value filmmakers who reproduce the same themes and or stylistic elements, uh, and sometimes undervalue the craft of a chameleonic transformation. <laughs> uh, and I think someone like Robert Wise, like his strongest qualities are that he is a remarkable filmmaker who made every kind of movie. Like, he made film noir in the 40s, he made The Setup, which is great, uh, he made horror, he made The Haunting, the 1963 version of The Haunting. If you've seen that, that's Robert Wise. He made science fiction, like the first Star Trek movie, he also directed The Andromeda Strain, which is great. Um, he directed oh, musicals, so he directed The Sound of Music and West Side Story. Like, he kind of did everything. He also shot, this is my favorite one, Robert Wise is actually the director. So, um, bear with me, this is like a film nerd thing, but Orson Welles in... So, after Citizen Kane, he made The Magnificent Ambersons. And if you've not seen Magnificent Ambersons, it's a great movie and you should go see it. Uh, well, you shouldn't go. I guess you should stay home and rent it or required by means of your choice. Uh, 
But uh, Magnificent Ambersons was a sort of epic of more than two hours, and then very famously it was cut down by the studio to be about 90 minutes. (laughs) Um, And it's like, it's one of the great film tragedies, and if you go to any article that's about, you know, lost films or the top ten most tragically lost films in American film history, um, Ambersons is like certain to be there really high on that list. Uh, but anyway, so uh, Orson Welles filmed the movie and they tested the movie and apparently the test didn't go well and then they chopped a bunch of the movie out and because film stock is, you know, expensive to store and also you have to store it correctly, which hardly anyone did, so the canisters exploded. Um, There's <laughs> a whole other thing. Uh, but anyway, there's no there's no record of any of the footage that was cut. Um, but they also did uh, the original movie had a kind of a downer of an ending, and so they brought in uh, the cast and some crew absent of Orson Welles, who was filming a um, uh, a documentary in South America. Uh, and they shot a new ending to the movie that was happier. Uh, and Robert Wise is <laughs> the director of the false happy ending of, of Magnificent Amersons. But don't hold that against him. Um, <laughs> I only say it because it's a fun factoid, and I like to, I like to just, I like to give that one out uh, at parties. Uh, but yeah, the point is, he had this great, like, really uh, full career of making every kind of Hollywood movie that ever existed. Uh, and I just don't think people talk about him enough. But anyway, he directed A Game of Death, and I, I didn't actually bring it up to talk about Robert Wise. That just happened because I have issues. But, um, but uh, it's... I wanted to talk about Noble Johnson. Noble Johnson is a character actor, uh, and he's 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 another. This is another like person you could look up. Noble Johnson uh, in the most dangerous game. If you remember, if you've seen it, if you haven't, I'll describe it to you. Um, you know, there's Councilor Olaf hunts people for fun, and he hunts Joel McRae and Fay Ray, and he has an assistant or a kind of sidekick or like a henchman whose name is Yvonne, uh, and Yvonne is uh, you know played by. Noble Johnson, uh, which by the way is a great name. It's not a stage name. Um, I don't think so. Gosh, I know. I'm pretty sure it's not a stage name. Um, and uh, Noble Johnson was a a character actor, like a bit player in, in early Hollywood films in the 30s and and, and beyond. And he uh, he was an African American actor who really benefited from some of the kind of um, and like. Race in early Hollywood cinema is a clusterfuck, and it's mostly an embarrassing history that one has to cope with. But uh, he kind of benefited from the fact that race in early Hollywood films was kind of treated uh, as a kind of flex- flexible category. And so he was like, because he was African American, he was a cast as every race. So he was always kind of like racialized in the sense that he was hardly ever playing a white character, but he was playing like uh, he was playing uh, Native American characters and Asian American characters. And he was just, you know, Yvonne, I think we take to be like European. I don't really know how we take Yvonne. I don't know if he's, I, we don't, I don't know if we have a, a I, I guess we take Zarloff to be sort of like Russian ish. I don't know, and so maybe Ivan comes part and parcel with that. The sort of background, I don't know if the background is, if, if it's declared, I don't recall. I haven't seen the movie in a long time. Uh, but that's interesting, uh, that, you know, this character actor played Ivan. But then here's the part that, like, makes it double super interesting. Um, and there's cha- there's articles written about Noble Johnson you can find, and I know that Linda Williams talks about him in 
her book playing the race card because he has this very complicated history of being a very racialized actor, but also this kind of like flexibly raced actor. It just I don't I don't know very many people like who have a story quite like this one, but so uh, Robert Rise remakes the most dangerous game as a game of death, and it's a pretty good remake. It's fine, um, but Yvonne plays no not Yvonne no <laughs> Noble Johnson plays another assistant. This time he's Caribbean, like like he just played like if you just if you just Google Noble Johnson and look at all the photos of all the like the people he's played, like he just played sort of played everything. It's like it's very it's a very complicated different way of, of talking about race in cinema where it's like he was always racialized, but he was always playing different races. Anyway, so he's sort of like Caribbean. His character is called Carib, um, and he is, you know, so in this in this case, it's not, um, it's I, 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 it, it's more of sort of a Caribbean origin of the story. Anywho, um, Noel Johnson plays a new henchman or assistant. Uh, but there's a moment in the first movie where the Count releases his dogs to find the missing, uh, the missing uh, victims, soon to, would be victims. And Yvonne leads the dogs around the, the woods. And in the remake, which I take to be quite low budget, uh, they use the footage of Noble Johnson as Yvonne from the 1934, I think, version? Or I Well, the 30s version, let's say that. Uh, of The Most Dangerous Game. They use the footage of The Most Dangerous Game in A Game of Death. Uh, and so Noble Johnson is in A Game of Death playing Carib, but he's also at the same time edited into the movie as the ringsman of the dogs. So he actually is playing Yvonne and Carib in the same movie uh, and like has two totally different ethnic and racial backgrounds in the same film. Uh, and it's just sort of not commented upon or remarked upon. And if you see the movie, I mean, Noble Johnson looks so distinctly different in every role and was made to look so distinctly different in every role that he sort of had no, there was no star persona that carried over. So he is able to be those two characters and not have people really question it. But if you know the actor, you know that what's happening is he's actually playing two roles at the same time uh, that are wildly different. And um, anyway, I just think that's like, that's like one of my Hollywood anecdotes. <laughs> I'm really interested in Noble Johnson, um, and uh, he's in he's in lots of horror movies too. He's in King Kong. He's in a bunch of these things. He was in um, he's in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, I believe somewhere. Uh, he's got like if you look at his IMDb, he's been he's been in every movie that has a henchman. He was he was in it. Um, and uh, anyway, A Game of Death. The, it's an interesting, strange anecdotal factoid. If you want to watch an unusual, r rare movie, uh, just out of curiosity. Uh, most dangerous game, game of death. Um, so anyway, Ready or Not, obviously, it, it, it borrows from uh, a most dangerous game, and, sorry, the most dangerous game. <laughs> and I guess sort of a game of death, but, you know, it's a sense from uh, the most dangerous game. Um, and this one, too, I mean, just, like, some words. I don't really know that you need anything else, but, like, so uh, Samara Weaving plays the other main character, and she's marrying into this very uh, opulent, wealthy family, uh, the, the Le Damas family, 
And she learns upon the day of her wedding that she has to play a game in order to uh, be fully become a member of the family. Uh, and that game is hide-and-seek, which seems cute until she realizes it's a life-or-death game of hide-and-seek. Uh, and uh, she is a kind of, like, spitfire character with a lot of uh, gumption who uh, who is diametrically opposed to the very sort of, like, blue-blood kind of family that she's marrying into, and uh, she is tasked with kind of one-upping them uh, and and surviving the night and possibly picking them all off one by one to survive them, and it's a fun movie to watch. I said fun, like, a lot, didn't I? It's okay. It's accurate. <laughs> I'll try to do better next time. I'm going to ring a bell and switch. <laughs> I'm going to ring a bell and switch to spoilers. I'll say fun less when there's spoilers. I, I wish, you know, I, I'm bad at doing things that aren't spoilers. I just have, I want to talk about the specifics. So, um, excuse if the, the, the general nature of the non-spoiler review is kind of like, vague. Uh, it has to be vague or else I'd be ruining things for you. So I'm going to ring a bell and do spoilers and then I'll get more specific. Okay, um, so I have a short list of things I wanted to talk about. Um, I made some notes. Um, the first is I want to talk about Aunt Helene, who is my favorite character. Aunt Helene is the gaunt-looking woman with the very uh, high, drawn-on eyebrows and the slick back white hair. Uh, she looks kind of like um, Elsa Lanchester's Bride of Frankenstein got a sensible haircut. Like, she's so... <laughs> creepy um, and before the movie turns creepy uh she is already she's the one who's already creepy from the first time we meet her like most of the characters turn uh she doesn't turn she just stays there uh if you you know in the early in the the wedding scene we see her uh, and she has, I don't, the posture, actually, I don't remember the actress's name, but the posture on her sitting in the audience uh, with, she sits with like her back very, very stiff and both of her hands just flat against her knees. But in the, it just looks so physically awkward. And then also her nails are painted purple, which I, th I feel like the physicality had to have been rehearsed because there's this intention of painting her nails really bright purple so that it, it really draws attention to the fact that her hands are just resting on her knees, which makes her look physically, like, uh, just looks, she looks so physically discomforted. Um, and then everyone stands at the end of the wedding and cheers, and I, I think she... She either exactly rolls her eyes or she just delays standing up. <laughs> uh, and she hates she hates this smart weaving character from the beginning, and she's delightful and like glamorous in a weird dark way. Uh, and I love 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 that character. <laughs> she's my favorite character in this movie. Um, I also love by the way that she, um, you know. She she's really a punchline character. I mean, she's or she's a, a very comedic character from Inception. Like when we meet her, we think, oh god, this is like the. She's like, oh, she's like, you know, she's like. This is another Hollywood reference. I don't know if this is helpful, but she's like um, in the old dark house, the James Whale movie. The this is it Rachel Femme. I, the family's called the Femmes. There's this old James Will, uh, haunt, not haunted house movie, but just like spooky house movie called The Old Dark House. It's literally called The Old Dark House. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's from 1932, I think. And um, 
It's the movie that James Whale, who directed Frankenstein, directed between Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, James Whale was, um, if you don't know, a queer filmmaker uh, working in the Hollywood studio system. Um, and anyway, so in, in the older house, there's a, a creepy family called the Femmes. And uh, yeah, it's Saul Femme, Rachel Femme, and Horace Femme. Rachel Femme is the sister, and she is just kind of, like, just at odds with the situation of having people in her house the whole time, and she just keeps screaming, you know, they can't have beds. Uh, so people will be trying to, like, do gracious introductions, and she'll just scream, you can't have a bed. Um, so she's, like, a comedic through-line the whole uh, movie, uh, and I feel like Annalene kind of plays the same note, where she's always, like, she's always at odds with formalities. <laughs> I mean, she's always kind of a caricature, and uh, or, or like you know, she's she's not a character that you like because you relate with her. You like her because she's so audaciously rude and resistant to all the formalities, uh, and I find her charming. Um, uh, uh, but she also does eventually kind of come to have character in this movie that's quite deep, which is, you know, we see in the first scene of the movie, we see uh, the, an earlier version uh, 30 years ago of this hide-and-seek game that the family plays, sometimes after weddings. Uh, and we see a man get carried off, get shot by an arrow and carried off, and we find out by the end of the movie that it's actually on Helene's wedding, and that, like, she... So she was the last bride to have to sacrifice her husband and she has internalized a sense of guilt because she couldn't kill him for you know in the name of the family uh and that all that also is like she's the only person in the room who had to go through this before and like really lose someone that she loves uh which you know, so not only is she marked as this kind of strange character and isn't that really funny, but then the fact of it is, uh, even though it works as a joke, it also really works as a character marker. Like, she is the the most particularly affected by the history of the family doing this because she is the only one that we know of who has actually lost someone to this process. Uh, and, and, and it's sort of defined her as like somber and bitter and loveless and and cold like her coldness which makes her funny is also defined by trauma which fun fact not to spoil the old dark house but there's a similar sort of refrain in the old dark house about rachel Fenn. uh and I, I love turns like that i love um when we have a character who is funny and then we sort of learn more about them and understand that what makes them funny is actually something that has roots and it and, and often is rooted in pain and that's just a it's just a smart turn and it just makes the character feel so much more complex and so it gives a lot of depth to the character that not all movies have or all movies afford all characters so there's a version of this movie where, where uh you know Aunt Helene is just a visual joke and uh, i think this movie is better for the fact that she's more than just a visual joke and she she is a visual joke and she's really fucking funny she's so funny um she's so funny uh but also the the humor pays off in this really a sincere way where it really becomes like she is the most committed to this cause because she was the most traumatized by it. Uh, and, and also really interesting, like I think it's an interesting turn. Uh, we'll talk about some like the broader themes of the movie, but 
it's an interesting turn and I think an important turn to investigate someone who's traumatized by something who doesn't turn against it, but rather doubles down in committing to the fact of it. Like, you know, there's sort of two ways that one goes with, um, like for, you know, uh, as like a comparable, uh, suggestion, like there's sort of two ways that one goes with the experience of, of, of being abused, which is like you either seemingly reproduce that abuse or you completely turn away from it and, and like work productively to counteract it. Um, and, but there is a psychology to someone who experiences trauma and then copes with the trauma by reproducing it for other people. Uh, and it's a, it's something that's really hard to understand, but it happens a lot. And so uh, I think that's the kind of depth that Anne Helene has where she lost the things she cares most about. She's been totally hardened by this process. And one would think she would be the most opposed to doing it again to someone else. But actually she's like committed to proving that, you know, she's worthy of the family and that she's worthy of this tradition uh, and actually just becomes the most sadistic <laughs> uh, of the whole family as a response to the trauma that she experienced having to sacrifice her husband. Um, the character's, Great, and I, I really I look forward to paying more attention to her in a uh, second watch of the movie because I feel like my first watch of the movie was I love her. She's like <laughs> she's she's like who I want to be. She, <laughs> uh, she has a, a, such a great nature, like a great dismissive attitude that's so fun to watch. Uh, but also knowing the kind of payoff at near the end of the movie of who she is in relationship to the other characters and in who she is in that earlier flashback that we see, uh, I think that'll make it uh, just, just even more interesting. Um, I mean, I think this movie, so I, I wrote down some things. The movie has, I mean, one of the things that, that Annalene is representative of, that's like a bigger, a bigger, uh, subject in the movie, which is just this idea of, of legacy and, and the sort of dynasties that passed down an ideology of, of predation for profit. Like, um, there was like, I, I glimpsed, I didn't actually read, I glimpsed <laughs> an article from The Guardian about, you know, how so many movies uh, in the last year, especially horror movies, have been about um, turning on, on wealth and turning on, on, on wealth uh at the expense of of uh, a class of people who are, who are working class, um, and uh, whether it be like the representation of the tethered in us, right? This idea of the, the sort of the like ruling class and the working class, um, or in this case, like a, just a very just plainly just like just decided and clearly identified. Uh, just like just uh, like almost aristocracy, like like a family that's been so powerful and so rich for so many decades, selling board games. <laughs> Which I know, I know this is spoiler, so I can say, but like I know that there's it, there's a deal with the devil, and that's like a thing. Uh, but it is it is fun to imagine, like <laughs> like how even the devil couldn't sell a board game in 2019. Am I crazy? <laughs> like you would think. I I mean I love. We'll get back. We'll get back to the dynasties and the legacies. But like I, I do love the fact of. Um, so many movies have made this like Jumanji for the new Jumanji movie like made the turn to like video games, and there's so many movies that are like we need to update this. We need to make it about video games, about digital games, and then this movie just comes along and like nope. It's a billionaire family founded on board games, and they still sell board games to people who buy board games. <laughs> 
Um, and I love that. I mean, there is a kind of general undercurrent of nostalgia in like a stylistic sense. I mean, the the, the architecture, the the set design, the costume design, it's set in the present, but everything looks like it could be 40 or 50 years ago. All the music is quite vintage. Like there's no like raucous modern music soundtrack. It's really, uh, it's really dated and, 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 uh, or not dated, dated sounds negative. It's, um, vintage. And there's a really kind of cool nostalgic feel that plays over the movie, even though it's, it's, you know, a contemporary story. Um, but back to dynasties and legacies and trauma. Um, <laughs> the fun stuff. No more fun. Oh, the, um, the, the awful, the, um, Moving along, uh, the, the, the I mean the movie has a, a pretty strong and like not at all uh, shrouded sentiment, which is like I mean literally, literally at multiple points in the movie, uh, Samara Weaving says a version of, of fuck rich people, and the movie has like a makes no qualms about the fact that it's a kind of has an eat the rich kind of philosophy, uh, and very much has even though it's supernatural and hocus pocusy, uh, has as a built-in critique of what it means ideologically to rule a family or run, I guess, well, run or rule, I don't know what you'd want to say, I, possibly both are valid in this case, but run a family with the purpose of and, and the willingness to exploit and, and, and harm people in order to sustain, not just like, not to sustain one's life or sustain one's family, Generally, but to sustain an inordinate and and, and unnecessarily opulent lifestyle, right? Like the, the the movie is not about a family that is like pressed with a choice between their survival and someone else's survival. Um, well, ultimately, I guess sort of that comes through in some of the minutia, but the deal was not like you don't live unless you kill people the deal was you don't get to be the, you don't you if if you do this you will become uh, just uh, a, a, a successful in beyond words right like it's it's a deal with the devil not about immediate survival but about arrival at a kind of beyond norm level of, of wealth and comfort and, and prosperity. And that's ultimately what the movie is about sustaining, which is the, the family's status as a ruling family is dependent upon uh, harming people who are below them in, in status. And... I mean, the movie's, like, in, just inordinately clear about that. <laughs> like, the movie's inordinately clear about the fact that it is totally willing to make the critique of families who profit inordinately from harm that they do to people in working classes. And I don't think you have to go very far to, like, extend that to real-world situations. Uh... So there's a lot, I mean, and, and I, don't, I also don't think it's, like, that, that revolutionary to say that, or, like, that's a great insight that I'm making. It's just, it's almost just, like, a clear description of what the movie says and how it works. Um, and, I mean, some of the places where it really reinforces this and some of the the better places where I feel like it does something to deepen that. I mean, I really like, for example, that Daniel, played by Adam Brody, that his, um, his... He has the like one maybe one of the most transformative arcs in the movie, and he sort of you know we meet him as a child in the flashback thirty years ago, and he 
uh, he runs into the groom and he calls the others and he, you know, he basically is responsible for them finding the groom and then bringing him to be sacrificed. Uh, and then we meet him, you know, later, and we see that he runs into Samara Weaving's character. I think I think she's called Grace. Runs into Grace and is basically like, I don't want to do this. Right? <laughs> he's in the same situation he was thirty years ago, and he we see that he's grown hesitant in in, in adulthood, and he basically says, I'll give you a ten second head start, but I have to I have to call them. It's it's necessary. Uh, and then he starts to falter, and the place where we see him start to falter is when um, he goes to the barn. I think I think he would say it is, uh, and one of his sister's kids uh, has shot grace, uh, because the, the kid has learned that this is what we do. Everyone else is doing it. So why shouldn't I do it? Uh, and you know, he's Daniel's is initially, he's super reticent to make this decision to act against his family's interests. But in this moment where he sees that it's not going to end here, or it's not going to end with him, it's going to actually keep going generation to generation and that the next generation of the family is already learning that this is what we do to people right this is who we are uh that's the moment where adam Brody actually plays it really well because it becomes very clear that he's made this decision to act against the family in that moment uh even though we don't really find out that that's the case until much later but it's totally clear he just he registers how atrocious it is not just how atrocious the ideology itself is, but also the fact that it's going to be passed down and reproduced, uh, and he kind of makes the choice to cut it off. Um, and that's a really great, a really great character story that I think makes him, I think, second maybe only to Grace, the most developed character of the the movie. I mean, I think Daniel and Alex are these interesting counterpoints because we kind of get the sense that Daniel lived through the first or the most recent prior. Uh, hide-and-seek game, whereas Alex seems mostly sheltered from it. And Alex, we understand to be uh, kind of on the side of Grace, uh, uh, even though he's extremely manipulative and <laughs> lets her get married to him and show up to the home uh, without knowing any of this. Uh, but, you know, he seems to be on her side, and then whereas Daniel seems to be kind of just in line with the family. And then they sort of grow in these opposite ways where... Daniel, having really seen what happened 30 years ago, is really hardened by it and wants to stop it. And Alex, seemingly without, I think, maybe a great depth of character, um, or not a great, not um, an absence of depth in the sense of like he's not a clearly drawn character or written character, but like he is not a very complicated human or a very smart or deep human. Uh, he makes this very cheap and short-sighted decision to turn against grace because he she realizes that she won't be with him and he he's his only selfish motivations um it's interesting to watch those two roles switch i also think it's a really fun just a fun twist at the end i don't know if it needs to be the most logical twist but it's fun to watch the back and forth of how the characters ebb and flow 
uh, in terms of of the the movie where you know we think Daniel is like the scary one and Alex is the good one, and then we kind of like Daniel is the helpful one. Alex actually turns out to be really scary. <laughs> I think the movie is really good at managing expectation, giving you. Uh, giving you uh, just a series of obstacles that feel believable and, and are, are, you know, uh, I don't, it didn't feel at any point that we were stuck in a rut or that we weren't getting anywhere or that, uh, she was kind of not doing as much as she could do to get out or, you know, like it didn't, it didn't have the feeling sometimes horror movies do where you're like, just leave, just go, just, you know, uh, it feels like a, an ongoing evolution of situations where character allegiances change, where situations change, where there's lots of, you know, the, the, the little boy in the barn is like a great twist where it's like this little kid and then he takes out a gun and shoots her. <laughs> uh, which by the way, those are some of the gross, moments i mean the only moments it turns really um it turns really fast uh grace is doing so well until that scene in the barn and then not only does she get shot in the hand which is awful but then she falls into a, a, a big dump of carcasses uh and then gets stabs herself with a, a nail uh, then uh, cuts herself on the gate like she has a series of misfortunate events um uh, and I, I think those moments, those are the only kind of icky, like physically icky moments. I guess that those ones and the the sort of shot of Andy McDowell's head being crushed, but you actually don't see her head being crushed. You just see it crushed. You see the after effects. Um, the two shots that are like, I almost didn't know if they needed to be there. Just and I don't know for my taste if I liked them. There is the shot of her hand going onto the nail, which is just really uncomfortable. And then that really particular shot of, like, her back being cut into by the fence while she's getting out of it, uh, with, like, a close-up of the blade cutting through her skin. Um, I don't I don't think, you know, I don't think they're totally out of line. I guess it's a horror movie, and that's kind of comes to the territory. Uh, but they are kind of, they are visceral in a way that makes the movie a tiny bit less rewatchable for me because I feel like one thing I like about this movie is that I would watch it so many times um but in part because there's not a lot there's not there's a lot of plot and progression and change and movement and happening but there's not a lot of like aggressively gross particularly violent moments uh, and a lot of them are comedic like i think some of the best comedy in, involves violence and i think uh very comedic broad stroke violence doesn't really turn me off like the 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 tr sudden tragic death of all of the maids it's a great running joke it's so good um it, it's so good, and because they're so uh, characterless, it doesn't. It's not. It just feels very uh, much like the the sharks and the blobs in the water with forty seven meters down. Like it feels not awful to watch happen, and it feels appropriate for a joke moment because it's such a there's. It's like you know, it's just like disposable minion kind of situation. Um, I know ethically that's not the, the deepest consideration of that fact, but when you don't develop a character, it becomes easier to uh, to off them in a comedic way. Uh, and I've written, I took screenwriting in college, and I wrote a script that involved the comedic death, and the, the professor was like, I just don't think this is funny. No one will ever find this funny. Uh, and the class defended me on it. Uh, and she asked them for an example of when they ever saw someone get killed and it was funny, and they all said in Pulp Fiction when, uh, is it Travolta or Sam Jackson accidentally blows the head off the guy in the backseat? 
they're like, that's the funniest moment in the movie. It's great. Uh, and I think, I think this is a kind of moment like that where it, because it's just, it's just such an anonymous kind of jobber character. You can get away with, uh, making a joke about them getting shot in the head with an arrow. Um, but that violence isn't, isn't like that violence doesn't bother me. The violence against grace is kind of hard because we really do like her and grow to identify with her. Um, so some of those things are, uh, they're not off. It's just different. You know, it's just makes, it's just a bit more difficult of a sit than, than I think the rest of the movie feels like. Uh, the gore at the end of the movie too, by the way, just is like a, not gross to me at all because all those characters by that point, we've sort of, uh, we've seen them do the worst <laughs> and, uh, to watch them all implode is kind of like, just kind of fun at that point. Um, uh, but I want to talk about too. There's this moment. So after she gets through the fence, there's a great one of my favorite scenes in this whole movie is when she gets through. She gets out of the house and then she gets out of the yard through the fence onto the street. Uh, and then we have this kind of in, in quick succession. We have she tries. There's a car. She waves at the car. She's bleeding. She looks right disheveled. And the car just like drives past her and like shouts something out the window, like you know, explicit. And uh, uh, and she's just kind of like fuck, you know, these fucking rich people. And then she gets into a car, she drives away, and uh, she uses the like I forget the name of the actual system, but the the not for copyright reasons on star navigation system and you know tries to talk to that person who then says oh, oh there's you know it's policy this car has been reported stolen it's policy i have to shut it down and she, she's like i'm bleeding people are trying to kill me call the police and the person on the phone is like well it's our policy i can't do anything my hands are tied um and i think those moments are some of my favorite moments in the movie because i've often said and i feel like it's true and i feel like none of horror movies have exploited this yet but like, if you ever got out of a, 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 a mass murder house, the likelihood that, like, someone you ran into on the highway would help you seems so sparse to me. Or that, like, the people, like, the systems of interaction that are established are really not designed to benefit people who are running from murderers. And also, the, <laughs> the, like, the, the fact of bureaucracy is, like, every... Like, Every version. I mean, there's a great scene in at the end of Hot Fuzz, that Edgar Wright action movie parody, where they sit down at the end of the action movie and they have to do a mountain of paperwork, because it turns out like, you know, there is bureaucracy for all aspects of life, you know, even life and death, and it, it's like a, it's it the movie. It's maybe the most horrific moment in the movie is when the OnStar guy shuts down her car, um, <laughs> because. Ultimately, it's a scene where, and I think this really adds to the critique of the movie, it's a scene about how bureaucracy is totally indifferent, uh, and bureaucracy doesn't actually intervene for survival. Like, bureaucracy basically dictates the upkeep of of a set of conventional norms. It doesn't allow for traversing the norms. It doesn't allow for, um, you know, things to be changed. Bureaucracy is in place to make things uh, stay the same and to make it very difficult to change them. Uh, and so in this case, she's like, I just, you know, like, I'm in a life or death perilous situation. Situation and you know she's trying to make a plea on on value and, and ethics like you know it is an ethical thing to do to help someone not get murdered 
And what intervenes here is like straight bureaucracy. Like I have to push this button. It says so on the paperwork that I signed when I got this job. If the car is reported stolen, we push this button. But you know, wait in the car, and the police will be there right away. Um, it's a really horrific scene. It's a very funny scene, but it's also a really horrific scene because I, I and I really appreciate it because it really taps into something that I've thought about a lot, which is like it just wouldn't go. It, getting out of the house is just the beginning in any of these movies. And for so many of these movies, getting out of the house is like the end of the movie. And in this movie, it's, it's really just kind of stage two of, of the levels of, 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 uh, violence she has to sustain. Um, I think it's a great moment. It's, 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 it's funny. It's, it f- feels incredibly possible, uh, in a terrifying way. And also it really like plays into a deep sense of dread. Like, you think all you need to do is get someone on the phone, but it turns out it's not enough. I mean, there is the. There have been lots of studies about co- the idea of compliance, um, and then there's a movie called Compliance, starring Dreamer Walker, uh, who's uh, who I really like from that show, Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23 with Kristen Ritter from Jessica Jones. It's a good show. It, it's really fun if you can watch it. Um, but it's based on a, a true case, which is like someone posed as. Uh, gosh, uh, someone posed on the phone as a police officer and, like, called a McDonald's and and basically got the staff of the McDonald's because they, you know, appealed to the idea of compliance and corporate compliance uh, that they got the staff of the McDonald's to, like, basically sexually harass an employee. Um, And because people are so prone to defer to seniority or corporate policy rather than kind of think through the personal ethics of the situation. Uh, and so within the sort of levels of horror of, you know, a hierarchy, uh, like a uh, sort of financial exploitation by the wealthy of the working class, bureaucracy and compliance become these other factors, which is like, Bureaucracy and compliance are factors that manage upkeep and and keep people complicit within, or within the system, keep people comfortable within the system, or believe the system is unchangeable. Um, and so I really love that. I love that scene. It's my, kind of my favorite scene in the whole movie. Um, it also brings me to, I mean, the disposition of Grace, which is a really strong factor in this movie. Like, she's so funny. We meet her, you know, in the wedding dress, smoking a cigarette, like, telling the family, already telling the family to fuck off before they've tried to kill her. Um, And then when they they try to kill her, she really tells them to fuck off. Uh, And I think this is, I think this is going to be a well-loved character. I think this is going to be an incredibly beloved uh, character. I think people will dress like her for Halloween. Uh, I hope, I hope, you know, any smart money on anyone for Halloween to do, like, all the smart drag queens are going to do, I hope, Grace from Red or Nod, <laughs> because you need a wedding dress, you need some Converse shoes, and you need, like, a full, like, uh, what, what do you call it? This, like, string of bullets that she wears around her wedding dress? It's such a great image. It's, like, it's an image, like, uh, at the end of, uh, uh, Planet Terror from that Grindhouse movie with the Robert Rodriguez did, where you get to the end and Rose McGowan has like become this uh, go-go dancer with a, a, a rifle for a leg. Like it's so uh, visually striking and kind of forged in a kind of pulpy pop culture image uh, that I think it will be memorable and repeatable. And uh, I think it's, 
it's only just part of what's appealing about her. I think the, you know, I think we relate to the character who is not a, a billionaire devil worshiper. I think we relate to we relate to a character who is scrappy, who is who is self motivated, who is who is sensible, who's the only one behaving sensibly, the only one right, the only one with compassion and care for human beings, the only one that would have made different choices. Like she would not have made the choice that Alex made, and that's why we like her and we don't really like him, uh, even before he tries to kill her. Uh, you know, I think I think the movie devises a main character who is, uh, you know, if we think of this as like a slasher and like a final girl or survivor figure, like this is a character that we want to root for. And part of why we want to root for her is that she's different. She's singular. She is totally not operating in compliance. <laughs> she is the antithesis of compliance. And that makes her incredibly charming and, and it makes her a really great protagonist for the movie. And, you know, ultimately, when we get to the end of the movie, the the joy is her laughing. I mean, we get to the end of the movie and just her laughing while this whole family explodes. And, like, a movie, go, it goes in. It, it This is also kind of where it reminds me of the cabin in the woods where, at the end, they're just covered in guts because uh, everything has, you know, been exploded on top of them. Uh, but... We, we watch her laugh as this whole family explodes. Uh, she survives the night. She makes it to the next day. Uh, they all have to face their comeuppance or the things that they've done. It's incredibly cathartic. It's, you know, it's incredibly satisfying. It's, uh, it is very much uh, kind of laughing in, in the face of and thumbing one's nose at all of the kind of ruling systems of power that fuck with us all on an everyday basis. I think it, I think it's incredibly relatable and incredibly, um, I think it's incredibly, uh, a, 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 associated with just this feeling of, of being fed up or overwhelmed or right. Needing to, to or wanting to see undone, the mechanisms that led to the present moment of all of our lives. And I think there's something incredibly cathartic about watching it. Um, not necessarily for the violence, but just for the idea of like watching this whole world burn. Uh, the house burns, all of the board games burn, everything burns. And it's, it leaves her adrift and, you know, not a part of a board game dynasty. Uh, but it leaves her a totally, individuated character who is at the very least out of that particular microcosm of a system that was a threat to her everyday existence and her future. And, um, the movie makes choices not to kind of direct us as to where she's going, but I think that also it's in the spirit of the movie not to expect that there's great things outside of this house. I think the house is a representative instance of, of things that are problems. I don't think the house is the totality of those problems so i kind of like that it just kind of leaves her in this moment of lighting up a cigarette and taking a break <laughs> uh with no promise of better things but with at least a respite from bullshit all right um that was ready or not i really uh i love this movie please do uh see it and uh if you have seen it i hope you liked it just the same um, and, uh, if you made it to the end of this episode, thank you so much. And I just have to tell you, it's very important to let you know that it is contagious and we do recruit. So you're totally gay now. Bye.